Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. And welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm Joy Rios, and today I'm talking with Summer Bobrek. She's the president and CEO of Hura Biotech. Her work is dedicated to addressing unmet needs in the field of women's health and specifically in reproductive medicine. In our conversation, we talk in depth about endometriosis, the current solution to diagnose it, which is through a pretty invasive surgery, and how her efforts are working to change that. Enjoy this conversation. I did. Well, Summer, thanks for joining me today. I am really looking forward to this opportunity to get to know you better and to get to know your organization. I liken healthcare to be a super complicated 3,000, 10,000, 100,000 piece puzzle, and we all kind of hold a piece of it. And this whole podcast is really trying to help uncover each of those pieces so that we can connect them and learn from one another. So if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to introduce yourself your organization and kind of where you spend your time and efforts in the healthcare ecosystem. Sure, absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. This is already fun. Like you said, my name is Summer Babrick. I'm the CEO and I'm the original founder, but we now have co-founders of Hera Biotech. So my background is in undergrad entrepreneurship, master's in data analytics, So really data science is where my education lies, but my passion lies in women's health and any sort of scientific breakthrough or technology that can help in that space. In terms of Hera, what we are focusing on initially is commercializing a non-surgical diagnostic for endometriosis. So 
For those who don't know, endometriosis is a disease that affects women and it's where tissue that would normally line the inside of the uterus invades outside of the uterus and it forms lesions all throughout the peritoneal cavity or the abdomen. And it causes debilitating pain and a number of other issues, including you know infertility and all sorts of um, mental health concerns and things of that nature. So Currently, you can only diagnose this via surgical procedure. And at Hera, we've developed a novel diagnostic that looks at tissue analysis of the endometrium and tells you whether or not that tissue is primed for invasive behavior. That's huge. I've known some people who suffered from endometriosis and had to go through all that diagnostic testing. And it was super painful. And like I was traveling with them at the time and I would just see the amount of pain that she was in on a regular basis. So any amount of work that's being done to support women and people that are experiencing endometriosis is just like a huge benefit. So is it just for the diagnostic aspect, which is huge, or that's where you're starting? So that's where we're starting. So we're starting in diagnostics. So I always go backwards to go forward. So pardon me, but I fell in love with women's health when I was in my undergrad. I had a really arduous labor and delivery with my first, who happened to be nine pounds, which is really what it all just turned out to be, is a big baby and a relatively small exit. So I developed my first technology in that space in my undergrad, competed at a student venture competition, went on to get picked up by a a venture capital fund, worked for them for seven years. And after an exit of a couple of the companies that I was involved with in the fund, I decided it's time to go do something different. And when I reflected on what it was that I wanted to do, I figured out, oh, I really want to get back to women's health. I was in the largest VC fund in our city. And I never saw a women's health company come through. Don't know why. Never got an application for it. And so I just thought that that was tragic. And so when I started to kind of look at the landscape, as one does when you're looking for technology, really, I found that the majority of the work was being done in therapeutics. But when you look at the science behind what they're doing, it's all around symptom control. Very few are actually targeting disease control. And that to me just threw up a flare, which is we don't understand these diseases, so we can't treat them, but we can help with the symptoms, maybe. So I took that as a, okay, we need to start at the very beginning. Let's go find a good, solid way to diagnose something that doesn't involve a huge burden on the patient. And then let's go from there. So that's kind of when I found the technology that Hera is based on, I was that I thought this is perfect. Okay, so we'll start here and then we can work our way up the food chain. Once we diagnose it in a robust way, then we can track progression of it because our our diagnostic also stages the disease. So if we can track progression of this disease, then we can learn about what it is and mechanistically what's going on, then we can treat. So, you know, following that step process. So can we talk about the difference between the typical way of diagnosing endometriosis and the HERA way of diagnosing? Sure. So the typical way of diagnosing endometriosis in very simplistic terms is if you've ever had the book, Where's Waldo? That's what we're experiencing. So OB-GYNs typically will refer a patient out to a laparoscopic surgeon. That surgeon then attempts to find the lesions that are growing in the abdomen or abdominal cavity, or it's really the peritoneal cavity, but 
for sake of discussion, and they biopsy those lesions and then run pathology on them. The problem is that's a huge amount of space. These lesions are relatively small in terms of what we're looking at there, and they can present in a number of different ways. They're very heterogeneous in presentation. So you've given this surgeon almost an impossible task, and they're not an endometriosis surgeon. They're a laparoscopic surgeon. So that's the current way, which is why we believe we've got such a big failure rate, which is about 50% of the time that that particular way fails to diagnose it. Our way is we go directly to the tissue that's causing the problem. So when you have these lesions forming, it's because the tissue that lines your uterus has gotten outside of your uterus and started to form these lesions. So we go directly into the uterus. It's a very similar procedure to placing an IUD. We take an endometrial biopsy and then we're analyzing expression levels of a gene set in that tissue. And that gene set is very well known to mediate cell behavior that's invasive, right? And what we've looked at in our pilot study is we've seen that the expression levels are seem, do seem to correspond to the disease stage. So we can tell the difference between someone that doesn't and someone that does. We can tell the difference between early stage and late stage. And that's just in 20 patients. So once we get enough data points, we're really talking about having the ability to silo this out and get these definitive stage one, stage two, stage three, so on and so forth. Can you help me understand the different stages? Because I honestly thought you either have it or you don't. And so what happens between the different stages Sure, who has endometriosis? So really the biggest changes that you'll see in endometriosis are the size of the lesions and the proliferation of the lesions. So how many lesions are we dealing with and what are the size of them? But when you start to get into the really late stages, what happens is even though that tissue isn't in the uterus anymore, it doesn't change the way it behaves. So every month it swells, it breaks down, it bleeds. And depending on where this is, so what tissue it's attached to, this causes a significant amount of irritation and inflammation. And when your body doesn't get rid of it because it's a lesion sitting there, you start to build scar tissue up. So it can cause pelvic adhesions. And in in super late stages, you can see things like having bowels adhered to each other or itself or to other pelvic organs. And it can be a huge, huge problem. Is it basically the equivalent of having your period, but not having it that exit the body? Like it's Mm -hmm. the period inside of your body that just hangs out. Well, and think of it this way, instead of just having your period in your uterus, you're having it in your entire peritoneal cavity in little bit. I can't, that pain, I mean, I, I've heard, I just, oh, it hurts thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and the, you know, one of the things that obviously is, I'm sure a lot of people on your podcast talk about, you know, as a founder, no matter who you are, it's an emotional journey and there's day, bad days and good days. And there's days where you sit on the porch and go, oh my gosh. What am I doing with my life? And honestly, it's the patient stories that get me through those days. Because I remember very early on, we attended the Endometriosis Foundation of America's patient conference. They had this patient conference, which I thought was just so incredible. And I remember being in the chat with these women and being like, oh, you just, you have to advocate for yourself and you have to fight and you have to, you know, and we're out here and we're trying to bring some solutions and things like that. And I remember one of the women was so lovely. She just said, but I'm so tired. I'm so tired. My whole body hurts all the time. Everyone tells me I'm crazy and I'm so tired. I can't fight anymore. 
And that just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, I mean, this is a woman who would black out randomly during her menstrual cycle because of the pain. And I mean, so intense. And so I just thought, okay, well, then someone has to do this. Someone has to fight that isn't exhausted. Someone has to fight that, you know, for lack of a better term is just kind of a bulldog and doesn't really care what anybody has to say about it. And so I thought, okay, I can do that. That, that I can do, you know, I volunteer as tribute. I will, I can do that. So on the days where I feel like I might not be able to do it anymore, I think about that. And I think about this and we get stories all the time and I, I read every single one of them. And I, I appreciate people being willing to share those stories with us because it's meaningful, it's impactful and it's important. Well, so what is the, is there a typical age when people would be seeking diagnosis? I mean, obviously it's after their first period, but then at, I yeah. mean, people like, I mean, the girl that when I, the girl that I was traveling with, she was in her late twenties and I don't know, like maybe that's stage two for a typical person who has it. I don't know. So yeah. So the other interesting bit about that. So a couple of things there, your symptom severity does not correlate to the stage of the disease. So you can have a very strong pain patient who's just in early stages and surgery would be contraindicated for that person, right? Because it's going to be very difficult to find and the lesions are going to be very small. And so we need to have other methodologies to help control this person's pain, right? Endometriosis is most commonly diagnosed in your 30s. And I, as a proud in my 30s woman, say it's because we're just real sick and tired of you telling us it's normal, Right. We're in our 30s now and we just, we're, know better. You know, yeah, we know better. But it takes in the US on average eight years and 10 plus doctor visits to be diagnosed. And these women are two and a half times more likely to turn up at the ER. They're, I think, four times more likely to be admitted to the hospital than their non endo counterparts. They, 74% of women with endometriosis are misdiagnosed. And one of the most common things that they're misdiagnosed with is IBS, which sends you on a whole different trajectory. And then the other thing that's so, so important about this is endometriosis is an estrogen-hungry disease. 90% of the birth controls out there are estrogen. And whenever a woman walks into a doctor's office and says, I'm having painful periods and heavy bleeding, what's the first thing they do? They put them on a birth control pill, 90% of which could make the, the, the situation worse. Wow. Yeah. So, so in a perfect world... When the woman has her period and goes to her very first OB-GYN, you know, pap smear, because that's, you know, you have your first period, you go to the OB-GYN and get a pap smear. That's where our test should be because it changes that patient's trajectory through the healthcare system completely. But for now, after she fails a couple of birth controls, we're targeting to be in there. Oh, so basically they still have to go through the experience of pain in order to find the right diagnosis. Right. Because at this point, our test still has to be done in a doctor's office. Yeah. Don't have to undergo general anesthesia and a surgery, but you do have to go to a doctor's office. So there is still that hurdle of getting a physician to run the test. And quite frankly, the easiest thing and less least invasive thing for a doctor to do is always going to be their first choice. And that is going to be to prescribe that birth control. Yeah. If she fails that birth control, however, or specifically if her symptoms get worse, really that's where we should be. Well, I mean, I like what you're saying about it being like in an ideal world, but I also can imagine that for somebody just starting their journey and being, you know, new to even having periods that like that would be a pretty intimidating doctor's visit to go through that test too. Like that's from zero to advanced. (laughs) Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, 
And frankly, I mean, if we're going to talk about ideal world, ideal world, I don't need an endometrial biopsy for this. So then it may not be as big of a deal. But yeah, I think, you know, it's one of those things. And I know there's been a lot of press lately about, do we need to have a pap smear every year? Is this really important? Maybe it's every other year or, you know, if she doesn't have cervical changes or doesn't have HPV. So I understand the argument for all of that. But when you start looking at healthcare utilization of these women and the cost of misdiagnoses and all of these things, there's a solid economical argument to run this test early because then perhaps, and we don't know this because endometriosis isn't well characterized, perhaps we can curb progression of the disease. You know, maybe there are interventions that can be made, but right now the only, the only therapeutics that are out there are hormone-based therapeutics, right? So basically we put women into menopause and there's all sorts of information out there that says that might not be a great idea, but it is the only option for them for symptom control. But with our tests on the market, a drug development company would have the opportunity to track progression of the disease, track efficacy of a drug through the clinic, something they can't do right now without cutting somebody open multiple times. So we're really hoping that with Hera commercialized, and we call the test the Mitri DX, that this would help drug companies go after actual treatment of the disease. So can we talk about that for a second? Because we're talking first, okay, we're, we're going to get better at diagnosing. But then once somebody knows, what are the current treatments available for them? Like, can we actually, okay, now that you know you have it, can we slow the progression? What is in sure. place to do that? Sure. So we don't know whether we can slow the progression because we don't have good data about the speed of progression. And that probably varies in different patients, which is one of the things like with data analytics and using these machine learning algorithms that we at some point might be able to do given enough data points. As a data scientist, I say with enough data points, I can tell you anything. Not being cheeky. I mean, it's just a matter of of having enough information. But we're finally starting to see... So traditionally, let's just go there. Traditionally, surgery is also a treatment. And basically what happens is the surgeon goes in and excises or ablates these lesions throughout the peritoneal cavity. Now, there's a whole argument over excision versus ablation because ablation is burning for those who don't know. These women are prone to scar tissue. These women are... So probably not a great idea, but there is a window that opens up once that's done of this kind of symptom-free time period. And that happens. And so that's kind of been the go-to. Then we figured out that GNRH inhibitors or basically drugs that put women into menopause reduce estrogen to the point that you go into menopause falsely, but that also provides some symptom relief, right? So now finally, we're getting some really good data that's actually saying surgery early and often is not a good idea. Because what they're finding is that window of symptom-free time is shortening with every surgery. So if you have an early surgery, really like a stage one, because she's very painful and you think, okay, we're just going to go straight to surgery. She's got a ton of pain. Well, really all you've done is set her up to have to have multiple surgeries throughout her life. So now what we're starting to find is there's some good clinical data coming out about success of intervening with progesterone-based birth control pills. Obviously, over-the-counter anti-inflammatories is needed, maybe some higher-powered anti-inflammatories, 
anti-inflammatory diets are showing some really good improvements and incorporating pelvic health physical therapy is showing some huge improvements in pain control in these really? patients. Mm-hmm. Yes, because what happens is a lot of the pain can come from inflammation or things like that, but a huge portion of it also comes, I hypothesize, or and so do other doctors, that it's this constant bearing down on the pelvic muscles. It's the curving over, it's the holding of the abdomen, and you start to get a tightening of all those pelvic muscles, which we know then causes a lot of pain, vaginal pain, et cetera, et cetera. So having a pelvic health specialist working with these patients early prevents that, gives them some coping mechanisms, so to speak, some exercises they can do to prevent some of these adhesions from happening. Wow. As endometriosis symptoms affect whole woman, it's going to take a whole approach. Until now, in the defense of pharmaceutical companies, how are they supposed to get a drug through the clinic? They couldn't. There was no option. And how were they even going to know what they were targeting? We don't know anything about the disease. We didn't have any reliable way to to diagnose it without a surgeon going in and physically seeing it and then just confirming that, oh, yeah, that tissue doesn't belong here. So what were they supposed to treat? You know, so now we're starting to see the technology emerge that provides therapeutic companies with the information they need to say, okay, we can target that. We can go after this and then we can watch it through the clinic and not have to cut a woman open all these different times. Well, so the other question that comes up for me is family planning. Like if somebody has endometriosis, are they supposed like that window of time where they're symptom free? Is that also where they're supposed to be getting pregnant if they want to have kids? Endometriosis is the number one cause of female infertility, but I think it's also really important to point out that only 30 to 50% of women with endometriosis have fertility issues, okay? So just because you have endometriosis doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to conceive a child. What it does mean is we need to be cognizant that you may or are at a higher chance of struggling with fertility. This is really important when a woman seeks some fertility intervention because most of the follicle-stimulating drugs are estrogen-based. These are not good for women with endometriosis. There are progesterone alternatives. They're just not as common. But if you have endo, definitely we need to know that because it changes your complete plan. If you are in the late stages of endo and you have a proliferation of lesions, you have larger lesions, maybe even some adhesions, yes, you probably are going to have to have the surgery in order to give you the best shot at getting pregnant, even with fertility intervention. But knowing that says, okay, so we know we've got this. We know that we're going to send you for the surgery because you've got late stage surgery because the Mitri DX said you did. So we're going for surgery. We're going to do an excision surgery. We're not going to do an ablation because that's going to make sure that everything in here stays as calm as possible. When you come out of that surgery, we're going to put you on an anti-inflammatory. And as soon as it you know, safe by your doctor's standards, we're going to start you on your IVF medication and we're going to go progesterone based. And it gives you that care plan and you've got the best shot that you can possibly have, right? So it is important when you get to that stage. And quite frankly, if you are in your 30s and you don't ever want to have a baby or 20s or I don't care, whenever you decide, I never want to have a baby. Okay, well, then let's have a hysterectomy. Let's make sure we get all of the lesions out and then we're in the best place we can be. 
Or if you know you want to have a baby and you're in your 30s and there isn't a good spot on the horizon where you feel like, oh, I have this partner and, and I think in that time frame we'll be ready, maybe we freeze your eggs. Or maybe you look for a sperm donor because you don't want to wait around for Mr. Right. right. So it, it helps you to really think through what your options are and make informed decisions. And I think women in particular love that. I mean, we're the planners, right? We're the ones with the... I don't know about you, but I have a menu of all the dinners for a month. That way I can... This is my 2022 calendar waiting to get filled in. There you go. (laughs) And so we like knowing... And quite frankly, I think there's a lot of, of credence to that. I'm sure I could find clinical studies if I needed to. But when you're in constant pain, even just having a name to give to it, having a reason, it's just so helpful. Because then you have something that you can identify and you're not being gaslighted and you're not feeling feeling like you're crazy, questioning whether or not you're making all this up in your head. And the journey starts there, right? Yeah. Am I understanding correctly that basically if you... It has an end. It's not something that lives with you forever. Basically, as soon as you travel into menopause land, it goes away. Is that fair to say? Yeah. You see a huge drop. After menopause, obviously menopause coupled with, you know, a surgical procedure to ensure that all of your lesions are gone and not misbehaving somewhere in your abdomen, that would be your best opportunity. But, you know, we hear stories of women who are like, oh, my doctor just told me you just have super bad periods, you know, heavy bleeding and I didn't want to have kids. So I had a hysterectomy and I still have pain. Mm. Well, probably they didn't go get the lesion or maybe it's something else. Again, this disease is really not well understood or characterized. So you do see a huge drop. You do see a a big drop in symptoms and and reports of it. But can we say definitively that it goes away and doesn't bother you? No, that's probably a case-by-case basis. Gotcha. Holy cow. Okay. Thank you for all <laughs> Sorry. Of that. Yeah. Did you did you mean to like dive off into the deep? I'm it not did. Sure. Well, because I I don't like I feel like I only have a surface level understanding and I'm like, well, you're the expert. Tell me. I need to know this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean to try to kind of simplify it or to put it in terms of something that is better understood, which is how my brain works. I have to take something that I don't understand very well and then put it in terms of something I do. What we envision for the Mitri DX is the same thing that the pap smear did for cervical cancer. So we knew cervical cancer was bad. We knew it was killing people. We didn't understand it. We didn't know what caused it. We didn't know anything about it. And the only way we knew it was happening is when we were doing autopsies and cutting people open. Then we started cutting them open while they were alive and saying, okay, well, that's bad, but I don't really know what to do about it. Then along comes the pap smear and we determine or discover that there's these very small cellular changes on the, on the surface of the cervix that tell you, uh-oh, something bad might be happening here or something isn't right. Or, and then now we know about HPV. Now we have a vaccine for HPV. And you know we've got this whole documentary basically of cervical cancer, how it starts, how it progresses, the main causes of it. And we have a vaccine against the big main causes of it. That's all based on being able to diagnose it in a robust way and then being able to track it. And that's where we are with it. I love it. I love what you're doing. This is awesome. (laughs) I want to know, what do you think 10-year-old Summer would think of what you're doing with your life right now? I think 10-year-old Summer would be like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm pretty sure I just failed a multiplication quiz. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Fast math was not my strong suit in third grade, which is, you know, basically where you are when you're 10. But yeah, I think that my life is very different than I ever thought it would be. I mean, I've shared this before, but I grew up barrel racing, which is a sport with on horses and it's in the rodeo. And I went to college on a rodeo scholarship and I went pro and did pro barrel racing before coming back to ground zero and, and going back to school and finishing my degree and all of those things. And it's just so very different than where I thought I'd be. I mean, I remember calling my dad in college and being like, I think I want to be a doctor. And my dad was like, oh, oh, well, there's a lot of math involved with that. You're not very good at math, you know? And uh, so maybe something else. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be, I want to be a lawyer. I could be a lawyer. I read really fast and I love to read. And he was like, kiddo, you're like the worst one at lying. And lawyers <laughs> have to lie. And I was so naive. I thought, oh, well, yeah, I'm not good at lying. Okay, okay. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. Like, what is it that you think I should do? And he said, oh, I think... I think you'd be a great person on the sidelines, you know, like a sports caster, you know, what? And I was like, yeah, but I, I don't want to do that. (laughs) That sounds awful. I think back to that a lot. I'm like, where was my gumption? Why didn't I be like, well, yeah, you're right. I'm bad at math. Might have to study a little harder. Gotta go to medical school, but I'm a first gen college graduate. So I think for him in his defense, it was just like, this is a win. Like yeah. you're in college. That's You've already a win won. It's already done. You've already, yeah. you've already exceeded our expectations and what we were able to do. So yeah. Yeah. And so now he just tells me, hey, kiddo, I don't get it. I don't understand what you're doing, but I'm awful proud. I'm like, <laughs> well, that's a win. <laughs> that's my win. But that's great. Sometimes it's, well, I have I, for the longest time, not so much anymore, but for the longest time, like what I did professionally, just nobody in my family could describe it. They're just like, we don't know what she does. <laughs> she, yeah. She's in health IT. What is health IT? We don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, but I think that's more fun because then you can, you can go either way with it, right? Like, when people are like, oh, what do you do? Well, I'm I'm in women's health diagnostics. Okay. You know, and they, they either like go that direction or they're like, really? <laughs> well, so what advice would you give to either women just entering their own professional career or even think back to like your 22-year-old self, right? Like, what do you think you needed to hear when you were at that age? I, I think the biggest piece of advice I could give my 22-year-old self would bet on yourself do it. Just go do it. Like if you want to do it, go do it. That's end of discussion. Because looking back now, and even with this journey with Hera, I'm never going to regret it. It doesn't really matter how it turns out. It doesn't matter if we you know, go IPO and, and become my vision of the first female-led company that puts 100% of R&D dollars back into women's health. That's on my vision board. I would love to to lead that company. But it doesn't matter if we tank it tomorrow. I'm never going to regret this. Never. Because I got to do it. Yeah, right? I feel like even when you think about like the worst case scenario, you've already done something big enough that that was worthwhile. Right. I mean, how cool will that be someday? I have two daughters. So how cool will that be someday if my daughter comes to me and is like, I have a really... Mom, my period is killing me. And I'm like... Mom's got it. 
like we're going we're going in and you're going to have this test and I can be like that was us. Well, one of the things that I really like even just like by you pointing out your daughter is this like normalizing these conversations. I feel like some of these conversations have just been missing altogether and and creating a comfort level even with young younger girls and women around like what goes on with your body. I mean, I was somebody that like, I didn't, I was super embarrassed when I got my period. I did not talk to anybody. I hid it for like three months. I didn't know what to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can sympathize with that. I was like, oh my gosh, I have clearly done something very wrong. I don't know what's going on. And I didn't Um, know what I remember thinking. I'm just like, oh, I must be the only one who's ever experienced this or like, like not yeah. thinking that it's something that every other woman and girl goes through that like, hey, we have a tribe of people that can help and support. Like you're yeah. not alone. <laughs> yeah. I remember I was a late bloomer, if you will. I guess if that's even still a term. And I, my friend asked me for something out of her purse and I I saw a tampon in there and I thought it was a cigarette or a cigar or something like that. I was like, sis, what are you smoking? <laughs> she was like, what are you talking about? That's my tampon. I was like... Oh, well, yeah, obviously it's your tampon. I'm like, is a tampon. (laughs) This is so crazy. I had like my mind blown. I did um, almost a year in Australia in my early 20s. And there, they don't really like their tampons, since we're talking about tampons, are applicator less. Like the majority of their tampons don't have an applicator. And it's just sort of normalized that like, hey, you're... I think that it's an interesting conversation because I feel like the message that they're sending to girls is you're not dirty. Like, don't be afraid of your own body. It's fine. Like, you can touch yourself. It's, yeah. And I'm in a position now where I'm living in Mexico and going into the grocery stores and seeing the feminine products that they have there. It's still majority pads. Like, and I'm just like, wait, what is the message that we're sending there? That like, if that's all, like there's there's a whole aisle of pads and different, you know, thicknesses and sizes and whatnot. And then like two different boxes of types of tampons. And then yeah. you're supposed to still be like ashamed about it. I just find it so interesting. Across. It's super, super interesting. I was on a panel not too long ago with two other amazing founders, Dr. Lindsay Harper and Dr. Sophia Yen. And we were having that conversation about, we all have daughters. And so what is that now? What does that look like now? What are the conversations? And one of my like most liked or viewed LinkedIn posts was I get tampons in the mail because I don't like to go to the grocery store and I don't have time. And so my oldest daughter was in there and she's young. She's 10. And she was like, what is that? And I was like, oh, these are tampons. These are... And she's like, what are tampons? And I was like, well, when you get older, you know, changes to your body, you have to have products to take care of that. And she was like, does it hurt? Right. And I was like, no, it doesn't hurt and it shouldn't hurt. And if it does hurt, we should talk about it. And she was like, well, what happens if it hurt? And I was like, well, it's not okay. We need to figure out why. And so there, and then (laughs) I will never forget, we were on this panel and one of the questions was like, wow, do you ever talk to your kids about masturbating? And I was like, well, I mean... I didn't like initiate the conversation, but my youngest was pretty proficient <laughs> in nap time. <laughs> and so, yeah, we had to have those conversations. And it's, it's so different because I remember growing up in my house, like I think my mom used to whisper when she would say the word sex. Mm-hmm. And I was like, who are we hiding from? Like, who's, who's listening to us talk about this? This is like way before Alexa. So clearly it's not Amazon. 
So what are we doing? But yeah, I mean, that's got to be so different now because to me, I'm just like, no, we need to have these conversations. Everything needs to be okay. Like, I, I shouldn't get called up to school when my kid uses the word vagina in the classroom. Like, right? Yeah, my mom was really scientific. She only used the word like penis and vagina. There was no nicknames. But my next door neighbor, she's a single mom with a daughter who's 16 and we're carving pumpkins and over and I'm just like... I've adopted myself as like her godmother and I'm just like, okay, so let's talk about your period and what we're carving pumpkins. Right. And, um, anyway, it turns out she wasn't unaware of like period underwear or the cups, you know, I'm, I'm an avid cup user. And I was like, Oh, that, that combination of being able to use the cup with the period pants is just like a game changer. And if I knew anything, when I was, if I had this as a teenager, it would have been a full on game changer. So, a week ago, I basically, like, I ordered some in the mail and gifted it to them. And um, the mom came out to me yesterday. She literally, like, stopped me as I was coming home. And she's like, okay, I know you meant these for Izzy, but I tried them. And I freaking love them. And they are huge. And she just was telling me, like, how it had opened up. <laughs> she oh didn't even know. And I was like, are you kidding me? Are we just, like, changing the Did world? Did we just like, become best period? friends? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> over our periods yeah. it was just really funny anyway. <laughs> it's, but it's so true I mean the the shift of perception around that it's just so important I mean for young for young women I mean you just it can't be dirty it's not gross like what is it the stupid pinky glove what? have you not heard of this no, oh my god not. these guys were on this like German version of shark tank right and their product was the pinky glove. And it's a pink latex glove that ladies can use during their period. So they don't have to get their hands dirty from oh, touching down there. Yeah. And I was like, bros, let's just be... And they got funding, which was the crazy thing. That's but it's like, bros, let's just be real clear. We're capable of going to the bathroom and not touching our genitalia. You are not. Please stop. Yeah. None of this is gross. We should all wash our hands after we go to the bathroom. Stop. I know. Stop acting like, ooh, who would want to touch a vagina? Well, exactly. probably you. Probably you, sir. Exactly. I would think. <laughs> They're not dirty. Yeah. yeah. And it's not a bad word. It's not a, like a dirty part. So anyway, I'm just like, we may be going off topic, but I just really, really feel like it's important <laughs> to normalize these conversations. And I love that you're bringing to the table like a major conversation that is not, that has just not been up available. And it's like, it's yeah. about time. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. I am honored to be able to do it, honestly. Good. Well, Summer, if people want to connect with you, follow you, work with you in any capacity, how would you direct mm -hmm. them? So I'm on LinkedIn. It's Summer Babaric or Hera Biotech is on LinkedIn as well. Hera has a website, just herabiotech.com. And email is the best way uh, to get a hold of me. And that's just summer, S-O-M-E-R at herabiotech.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you for yeah. your time today. This has been a thank lot of you. fun. It has been. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Inc. CMS's merit-based incentive payment system or MIPS is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. 
Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.